Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Ewan Ashley about the Genome Odyssey. First, wanted to let you know that if you like this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to bookshop.org. Now, they don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Books on Pod. My name is Paul Nurse. I've written a book, What is Life? If you read it, you will understand what biology is, what life is, and you will do it in five simple steps. And this is Books on Pod by Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Dr. Ewan Angus Ashley is a professor of medicine, genetics, and biomedical science at Stanford University, the founding director of the school's Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Disease, the Clinical Genomics Program, and co-director of Stanford Data Science Initiative. And he's just published his first book titled The Genome Odyssey, Medical Mysteries and the Incredible Quest to Solve Them. Ewan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's my pleasure. Now, you're a cardiologist by training. So how did you end up so deep in the world of the genome? That's a great question. Well, for me, it started a long time ago, actually, even in, in, in high school. I knew from a very young age, like four or five years old, I wanted to be a doctor, really interested in the heart. We had heart disease in our family and in the west of Scotland, where I come from. Heart disease is the biggest killer by a mile, one of the highest rates in, in the world. So cardiology was kind of in my, my in my feet. But uh, one of my biology teacher actually gave me a copy of Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, uh, when I was about 16. And I read that and just really enjoyed the writing. It just lit, lit me up from the perspective of, of understanding genes and the genomes and the history of the, the human race. So when I had a, an opportunity to come over to Stanford about 20 years ago now, uh, I, uh, I expanded my interest in genetics and uh, took that even uh, further towards patients. And this was the time there was a whole revolution in genome sequencing happening. And I, I loved computers too. I was kind of a gadget guy growing up. And so used to program computers when I was 12, 14 years old, uh, making little games, horse racing games uh, for my friends to try and impress them. I'm not sure it impressed them very much, but uh, it was a way to learn computer programming. And then when I had the chance to come to like the center of, of the world for, for tech, uh, it was great to be able to combine this interest in, in medicine and genetics and then computers. And so that that's pretty much how I ended up here. To provide some context for folks listening right now, to make sure we have a baseline for the subject matter of today's conversation, would you mind letting folks know what exactly the genome is? Yeah, absolutely. So the genome is, is essentially like a secret code. It's inside almost every cell in your body, not exactly everyone, but almost every cell in your body. Um, if it's, it's basically the DNA helix, so it's made up of DNA, and that is basically four letters, an A, a T, a G, or a C, and every one of your six billion letters is one of those letters, A, T, G, or C. Uh, your code is unique to you. Uh, it, has, it essentially embeds the history of the human race. It connects you to every living organism on Earth, but it is tightly wound into a right-handed double helix and then compressed into the nucleus, that central core of every, almost every cell in your body. And it really it, it, um, can tell us so much. It can tell us a lot in, in terms of predicting how tall you'll be, what kind of hair color you'll have, what kind of person you'll be, uh, and, and what kind of diseases you might be susceptible to. So that, that's what the genome is. 
People may be surprised by this, but only 2% of the genome is DNA for proteins, which are what really help make everything work in our bodies. And for a long time now, that other 98% was thought of as junk DNA. But we now know that this junk has value. What exactly is that value? Yeah, it's it's very curious, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the proteins that do the work of the cell, so the actual mechanical parts, are coded for by these genes. And as you say, they only take up 2% of those, those 6 billion base pairs. And for a long time, as you said, we, we just thought the rest was junk. But actually, I think, you know, Mother Nature is smarter than that. And we've been learning somewhat to our embarrassment over the course of the last few years, particularly the last decade, that that 98% is really vitally important. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that the genes, the 2% uh, are, the, are the kind of mechanical portion. They, they move things around cells. They are responsible for the, the units that drive our muscles to shorten. But the question is, how do you regulate those? If you think about a, a JCB on a, on a work site, you, it needs to be operated. Someone needs to decide when it's going to turn on, when it's going to turn off, who, how, how, dig it's gonna deep, how, how, how deep it's going to dig. Sorry. Um, and so the rest of the genome does that, essentially. It regulates it tells the genes when to turn on, when to turn off, uh, how, how, how to be expressed and what cells to be expressed, at what level to be expressed. Uh, and so a lot of the regulation of genes happens uh, in that. So what we used to think of as, as junk, but actually turns out to be, to be really important. Why and how did your life change on May 1st, 2010? Well, uh, so it, I think 2010 really goes back to, to 2009 in, in many ways. Uh, but around that time, we, we published a paper that uh, described uh, essentially the first patient to, to walk into a doctor's office with his genome essentially available on a, on a hard drive, as it were, for his doctors. And um, it was kind of an incredible moment at that time. It, it really backs, uh, backs out kind of a year before when I had met one of my friends and colleagues, really was a future friend. I didn't know him at the time, a guy called Steve Quake. He was chair of the bioengineering department at Stanford. And he had made headlines the year before because he had sequenced his own genome using a technology he invented. And he did that in his lab with just two other people in one week for around $40,000. And, and the incredible thing about that is that the, the genome before that, he was the fifth person in, in the world to have his genome sequence. The genome before that cost about five to 10 times that cost and took many, many months and took dozens of people. So the fact he did this in one week with two people in his lab, including with the technology invented was remarkable. But of course, sequencing the genome is really just spelling out the individual letters. It doesn't tell you anything yet really about the individual and particularly from our perspective, tell you about what kind of diseases he might be susceptible to. And so I was uh, in his office, this was about nine months, almost a year before that date in May. And uh, he was essentially showing me his genome on the screen. Uh, we were there supposed to be talking about something else, seminar we were putting together. And he was showing me essentially all these letters on the screen. And this was just un un unbelievable to me. I'm, I'm a, a doctor at Stanford, as we discussed. I'm a cardiologist. I see patients and families with inherited heart disease. And so I, I was used at that time to sending genetic tests that maybe you got three genes, maybe you got five, maybe you got eight sequenced. And that would take three months and essentially would cost you five, $10,000 or the insurance company would pay that. And so this was kind of an incredible moment uh, for, for, for me in the sense that the first time I'd been staring at the genome. But much more than that, he started pointing at genes uh, whose, whose names I recognized and that were associated with heart disease. And so I started asking him about 
those genes and about his family history of heart disease. And he starts saying, oh, yeah, my family actually had told me I was supposed to go and see a cardiologist. This is quite handy that you're here. And he starts describing various members of his family that had heart disease, had, uh, including his cousin's son, who was 19 year old, who died suddenly. Uh, and this really changed on a dime, just all of a sudden, the, the, the tenor of our conversation, because we went from talking about a science seminar to really more like a doctor patient situation. And as I got ready, essentially, to invite him to my clinic and realized uh, that he was basically about to walk into that clinic with this genome and that he would be the first patient in the world to do that, which was really just kind of mind blowing to us, not least because we had no idea what to do with that kind of level of data. We're used in, in cardiology, particularly to uh, a cholesterol panel, which has about five numbers in it. You think of your good, good cholesterol and your bad cholesterol. And suddenly here was a patient with six billion data points. And so this, this was really just, you know, an un unbelievable moment. And so we had to think about putting a team together at that time to try and work out how we'd interpret this genome. And, and that took about a year and, and uh, later in, in May 2010 uh, was when that paper came out. Considering how much work you do with the genome now, was that one of those aha moments for you where as soon as you had access to that information and the ability to try and utilize it to help people out, were you pretty much sold hook, line, and sinker then? Yeah, I think the power of, of the data in front of me, I, I'm always, as I mentioned, I, I'm, I've always been a computer guy and I, I love data and I think that we, we can get a lot of insight by appropriately harnessing and, and analyzing data. Uh, but we don't always do that very effectively in, in medicine. And, and we know that almost every disease has a genetic component. Of course, environment really important as well, but almost every disease has a genetic component. And for some diseases, the genetics are the, the main thing, the single most important feature, if you think about diseases like cystic fibrosis and other very uh, tightly inherited diseases, we sometimes call them Mendelian after Gregor Mendel. Um, but yeah, it was really a, a revelatory moment because I, it really seemed like, well, the, the, the rate at which the cost of sequencing the genome was coming down was such that while there were still only a handful of people who'd sequenced their genome at that moment in time, it wouldn't be long before the genome might be available to everyone. And the sheer power of that was, was just really exciting. And we realized that we're going to have to work out how to harness that data, not just one genome, which seemed enough at that moment in time, but eventually hundreds, thousands, and, and then eventually millions of genomes as well. You mentioned that while pretty much all diseases are genetic in nature, there are diseases that are just more difficult to diagnose than others. And I think that's one of the important focuses of this book. The National Institute of Health has a program called the Undiagnosed Diseases Program. And it's pretty self-explanatory in the name as to what the goal is there. How did you end up partnering with this group, Ewan? And what sort of help were you able to provide? Well, yeah, the Undiagnosed Diseases Program at the, the National Institutes of Health was formed in 2007, actually about 20 years after kind of its founder, a guy called Bill Gall, had first suggested the idea. Uh, but it, it came about because of a recognition that there were those individuals and families out there who were suffering from conditions that had no medical answer. And they'd go first to their GP usually, and then to a specialist, and then maybe to another specialist, and then maybe to a regional specialist. And nobody could diagnose either because it didn't look like anything they'd seen before. Uh, or because it looked like a combination of things that nobody could really understand. And so these patients were out there really with nowhere to call home. And more, more than that, um, no label to give their condition. And, and I think although that by itself sounds like, well, does that matter much if you, you know, if you, if you don't know what it's called? But in reality, it's a really isolating thing. If you don't have a group, you don't know what you have. Someone says, well, 
you have the, all these medical issues. What what is it? And you can't even give them a name. And so this UDP, the Undiagnosed Diseases Program, was formed in response to that to give those kinds of people uh, a home. And I, I first got involved uh, really as the idea of expanding. It was so successful, I think. But the, of course, one center for a country the size was just never going to be able to meet the demand. And so the idea was to expand it into a network across the United States with NIH funding uh, and basically have a, 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 a higher capacity, essentially, and uh, have a more geographically uh, dispersed group of people who could uh, attack these mystery diseases and really try to help these families. And so, yeah, just a few years later, that network was beginning to expand and we applied at Stanford to become part of it. And I was very uh, lucky to be able to uh, co-chair along with Bill Gall, that first uh, chairman, uh, the the group. And so it was re really exciting. And we, we each center brought their own expertise. And of course, in our case, we had this real interest in analyzing genomes that we, we brought to the table. The Undiagnosed Diseases Network discovered 31 new syndromes by late 2018, which you wrote about in a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Four or five cases also found a life-improving treatment, like with the brothers Carson and Chase. What's their story, and what allowed the UDN to successfully diagnose them where others had failed? Yeah, Carson and Chase are, are two really uh, bright uh, kids. Um, they are sons of uh, Danny and, and Nikki, and uh, they, in many ways, embody so much about what the Undiagnosed Diseases Network tries to do. So Carson was the older brother, and he was born um, first, of course, and then he started to develop up to about a year old. His development looked pretty normal, but around a year, he started to to not quite hit his milestones and even go backwards a little bit. So instead of cruising around the way that uh, one-year-old kids do as they start to learn to walk, he actually regressed a little and started going back to crawling, whereas he'd been starting to be able to grab implements and start to feed himself. He, he kind of went backwards. Certainly, his intellect seemed fine. He seemed to be developing normally from a, a, a brain development perspective, but from a movement perspective, he definitely had some challenges. And Danny and Nikki, of course, took him to their local doctor and then to a regional doctor, development specialist, and there were really no answers. At, at one point, they got the label cerebral palsy, but that by itself didn't, didn't tell them anything about really what he was suffering from. And then happy, happy day, his brother Chase came along uh, and he initially also did the same thing. But at the time, around the same kind of age, when he started to regress his milestones, it became really clear that this was a genetic condition. And so they underwent actually some pretty sophisticated genetic testing, including what we talked about, the 2% of the genome that codes for the genes. And there was a test where you could sequence, spell out the letters. Is that called exome sequencing? That's exactly right. Yeah, called exome sequencing. So they, it, Carson had even had exome sequencing and a result had not been found. And so that at that point, I think they were on their fifth neurologist and, um, and Danny had found out about the Na National Institutes of Health program, the, the UDN, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. And uh, his neurologist had al also heard of it. And so they were referred into us at that, at that moment. And one of the things we're able to do because of that program is sequence not just the exome, just, not just that 2%, but rather the whole genome. And, and really more than that, we can do it for the whole family. And there's a huge power in doing genetics with a family because, as, as we all know, we're, we're related to each other. We share DNA. In fact, you share 50% approximately of your DNA with your first-degree relatives. And so if, we're, if we have our Sherlock Holmes hat on and we're trying to work out the answer to a medical mystery, then having the DNA from, in this case, all four core family members is very powerful. 
And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that sometimes a kid is born, a new baby is born, and has a brand new variant that isn't in either parent, and that's what explains the condition. And so if you have the parents' genomes, you can compare them and, and find the variants that are new in, in the newborn. But in this case, we had two brothers, so it wasn't that. What we were looking for in the genomes was a variant, perhaps one that came from mom and one that came from dad that came together in both boys to cause the condition. And that's in fact exactly what we found. We also found one of the variants was in that regulatory region, that <clears throat> non-coding region outside of the gene. So it wasn't visible to the prior exome. So the combination of having the whole family and then having the whole genome was what allowed us to make the diagnosis. And we found that they had a new condition. They were only the eighth and ninth boys in the world, eighth and ninth kids to be diagnosed with a condition called MEPEN syndrome, where one of the energy units, so you have these little uh, pieces in, inside cells called mitochondria. They're like little batteries, little powerhouses of the cell. And inside those, there are little pathways that essentially create energy to, to move your, your body. In this case, a particular area in the brain uh, depended on that energy pathway. And they had both had a variant in this one gene that was critical for that energy pathway. And so they both started to display these movement uh, challenges. It's just so wild to hear about. And obviously sequencing four different genomes, it isn't free, but it costs significantly less than it did 15 to 20 years ago when it would have literally cost you millions of dollars to do that. Why did testing get so much cheaper within the last decade or so? Yeah, it's really been an, an incredible revolution. I mean, we often compare the drop in cost of, of sequencing to the speed of technology innovation. And we sometimes think about how fast computers are now and the fact that if we have a smartphone in our pocket, it's like a computer that used to take up a, a whole room back in the day. Uh, and so, in fact, that that's sometimes formalized in something called Moore's Law, uh, which was Gordon Moore was the founder, co-founder of Intel, the company that make the microprocessors. And he basically saw the speed at which they could improve the number of little transistors on each processor. And he declared this law that said every 18 months of the number would double. And we, we compared the drop in the cost of sequencing uh, to Moore's law, basically Moore's law being emblematic of how fast uh, technology can advance. And, and it actually tracked Moore's law until about 2008. Remember the human genome draft sequence was 2001. So it tracked along and everyone was kind of amazed at how rapidly it was moving forward and we were all really excited. But in 2008, it, it quite literally left Moore's Law in the dirt. It, it advanced so rapidly that the genomes went, as you say, uh, from being millions of dollars uh, down to being thousands of dollars uh, to, to the point today when you can sequence a genome uh, for around $500. And not only is that process cheaper, but it can actually make America's expensive healthcare system a little bit more cost effective, too. How does genomic testing save money, especially for those with these undiagnosed diseases? Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because, of course, any medical test needs some level of justification in the sense that it hopefully makes the patient better or gives you a new insight or even better gives you a way of treating them. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, skepticism, healthy skepticism at the beginning when a new expensive test like genome sequencing comes along to demonstrate that it really was cost effective. And one of the analyses that we did as part of the paper you mentioned a few moments ago from the Undiagnosed Diseases Network was we looked at the costs that these individuals were accumulating. And it's not just a cost, remember, in, in financial burden, it's actually an emotional burden too. But for this analysis, we, we looked at the cost in financial terms. And not surprisingly, when you think about them going, these families going from one doctor to the next to the next, and each doctor doing their own tests, 
the financial burden was very significant, usually more than $300,000 in the year or two preceding the time when we saw them. But if we, if, if we used the genome, which by itself was then around $1,000, $1,500, basically our costs were 95% lower than that. We were spending under $20,000 total to end these diagnostic odysseys and get treatment to the individual. And remember, because these are genetic conditions, it has implications not just for that single individual, which is what that analysis was for, but actually for family members too, because so many of these are inherited and we can often get ahead of the disease in other family members and prevent other medical costs downstream. So this is one of those unusual new technology, cutting edge diagnostic tests that actually saves money in that setting. Now, up to this point, we've talked more about genetic testing helping with diseases in general, but you being a cardiologist, of course, you do apply this to patients that you see on a daily basis. What is long QT syndrome? How did genetic testing help patients to better understand the connection between deafness and sudden death, especially in children? And why was a newborn patient of yours in 2014 named Jasleine such a unique case of this affliction? Yeah, long QC syndrome is something that was first, uh, wasn't given that name for some time, but it was first detected uh, in the 1800s, actually in Germany. This was an interesting piece for me of uh, kind of detective work I did in, in, in putting the book together, in that I uh, found this story, uh, it had been, been reported in a few places, but I, I found the original text in German. I actually had to get my neighbor here on Stanford campus who's German to translate it for me. Wow. Yeah, but basically there was a doctor back then called Ludwig Meissner who looked after patients in a in an institute for the deaf. So back back then kids they would they would they had deafness, they would sometimes live together in an institute. And basically this little kid had been found to have stolen some objects from one of her friends. And uh, they knew it was her and they basically decided that they were going to kind of name and shame in order to um, try to impose some discipline. And uh, they so in front of the whole class, they called her out and said, you know, what have you done? And this was a very tragic story because the stress of that event actually led to her dying suddenly right in front of them. And Meissner was called. Of course, he couldn't do anything to resuscitate her. And he went to, to speak to the family. And amazingly, when he gave them the tragic news, they were not surprised and, and then informed him that her brother had also died in a similar way. There was a stressful circumstance and he had just suddenly died. And this combination of deafness and uh, sudden death was really noted for the first time in the, in the 1800s. And um, it took quite some time before we really understood what the condition was. And in fact, took the invention of the electrocardiogram uh, which was about 100 years ago, which is a, a method of looking at the electrical activity of the heart where you uh, essentially take um, electrical signals and you see a very characteristic uh, feature, which is that there are basically four waves, uh, five waves, if, if depending on uh, how, you, how you count them, that, that represent the electrical activity of the heart. And they were labeled, they didn't start at A and didn't start at Z, they started at P for reasons that are lost to history. So the, the PQRST were the labels that represent the electrical activity of the heart. And so this is where the QT part comes from, because the distance between the Q and the T on that electrical electrocardiogram is what represents the resetting of the heart with every beat. And once that electrocardiogram was found, uh, was, was invented, a number of, of uh, individuals who had 
sudden death and deafness were found to have this long QT uh, by some Norwegian uh, cardiologists. It took a few years later into the 1990s before an understanding of, first of all, why deafness was associated with this, but also really what was the genetic basis of that condition. And that took uh, some, some advances in, in genetics. But what was found was a potassium channel. So this is a channel that sits on the, the edge of a cell and shuttles potassium in and out of the cell. And what it was, and, and in the heart, that's particularly important because every time the heart beats, it, it electrically, the word is it depolarizes, but then it resets. So a lot of these ions, potassium, sodium, and others move in and out of the cell with every beat, and that's what activates the heart. And if you have a channel that's not working properly, in this case, a potassium channel, then the QT is lengthened, their heart takes longer to reset, and that by itself can predispose to potentially fatal arrhythmias. And that's what was going on with that little girl. Um, it also explains the deafness because the only other place that potassium channel is found is actually on the inner ear. So this was a, a, a real revelation and really an understanding for the first time, now this is in the 1990s, of the genetic basis of, of long QT. So that brings us to the little girl that we describe in the book and that you asked about, Jasleen. And we first got to know her when she was still in the womb, actually, when she was 36 weeks of gestation. And she was found to have a heart rate of 70 beats per minute. And 70 beats per minute is okay for an adult sitting, resting in a chair, but it's actually way too low for a little baby swimming around in her mother's womb. It should be about double that. And so she was transferred into the children's hospital at Stanford and, and delivered by cesarean section. And at that point, we realized that uh, one of the thoughts was perhaps she had a heart block, and that's why her heart rate was 70 beats per minute. But we realized actually she had one of the most extreme forms of long QT syndrome we'd seen. And that by itself, or the heart rate, were not the things that were, were challenging for her, but rather in, on her first day in the outside world, she suffered five cardiac arrests, which is to say that, that her heart stopped five times and each time the team ran to the bed and to do CPR on a neonate is, is basically fingers and thumbs just to push the blood out of her heart when her heart isn't pushing by itself. And, and each time she was resuscitated, she became, uh, within a couple of days, one of the youngest babies ever to have a defibrillator implanted. So that's a device that goes, in in the case of a neonate, into the belly. Uh, for adults, they go just under the collarbone. And then a, a lead gets uh, snaked, which is an electrical cable gets snaked into the heart so that it can monitor each beat and, if necessary, deliver a shock to bring the heart back to normal. But the reason we're talking about it here is that long QT syndrome is a genetic disease. And when a little baby like that is, is having multiple cardiac arrests, we, we literally throw everything at the wall. We, we take every drug that we have and we, and we give it in the hope that we can stop these uh, abnormal rhythms. But that's, of course, not a very precise way of, of doing medicine. And if, if we really understood the underlying molecular basis of that disease, we could do a lot better. And the challenge at that time then was that to do a genetic test would have taken three months, would have cost $5,000. And so that was kind of time she, she didn't have. And so we, a, a group um, had been working at a company called Illumina that do most of the, develop most of the sequencing machines for human genomes. And they'd worked with uh, a doctor called Stephen Kingsmore in Kansas. He's now at Rady Children's in, in San Diego to, to work out how to sequence genomes faster. Because even at the time, it would still uh, take many days and even a few weeks and certainly much longer to interpret them. And uh, we, we worked with them and basically managed to sequence Jasmine's genome over the course of a weekend. That's incredible. 
just amazing, you know, like a huge team effort and really building on the work that these other groups had done. And, and so speeding up our computational pipeline as, as well while we were waiting for the data. Uh, and a postdoc called James Priest in my lab, they essentially grabbed the data uh, on, on one day and ran it through this, this speedy algorithm, uh, speedy uh, computer-based kind of search uh, approach and uh, managed to find the cause of her underlying long QT. And, and using that, we could then alter her therapies to make them much more precise, really targeted at the underlying molecular condition that, that she had. I was surprised to learn that some people have more than one genome. How does this happen? And is it something that's difficult to spot even with genomic sequencing? Yeah, it's very unusual, uh, but it's, uh, but much more common than we ever thought it was. Uh, we, we call it uh, mosaicism after the, literally the mosaic pattern that you find, which is to say that people end up can, can end up having more than one genome. And there's a few different ways it can happen. But the, the key thing uh, is that every time your cells divide, and if, when, when you grow, of course, your, many of your cells divide, and that's one of the ways in which uh, your body grows. And every time that happens, there's a potential uh, for a genetic mutation to happen. Now, we're, we're, our bodies are very good, and the particular uh, enzyme, the particular little engine inside the cells that makes new DNA, is very good at proofreading. It, it, get, it doesn't make many errors. And uh, because our genome's so large, the chances that an error in a really critical region happen are, are even smaller yet. But it can happen, if, and if it happens in development, you can end up with an individual who essentially has some groups of cells with one genome, and another group of cells with another genome. And, and we had found uh, this in, in, un, in kind of amazingly to us, the, this another presentation with a young uh, newborn with long QT syndrome, actually, and very similar presentation to Jasleen. This little girl was called Astria. And, uh, and at the beginning, we, we sequenced her genome in the same way we did with Jasleen really quickly. And we thought we had the answer because we found a variant in a particular gene, a sodium channel gene this time, that really appeared to be the, the smoking gun because there'd been a variant at that position described before and a little baby had presented in exactly the same way. And that second case is often what leads us to have a lot of confidence that we have the answer. But then we tried and we always used two or three different ways of, of looking at the data in order to con con really uh, tell ourselves that we have it right, give us the confidence that we, we found it. And when we did that in her, we found the other methods disagreed. And so we scratched our heads and uh, eventually uh, realized when we did much deeper sequencing, which is to say we covered the genome many more times for each place. And then we looked at the mom and dad. And then finally, we actually did some sequencing of individual blood cells and even her heart. At one point, she needed to have an, an artificial heart pump inserted. So a little piece of her heart was taken out. And what we realized in her case was that she was one of these rare individuals with two genomes and that one of her genomes had this variant in this position in the in the sodium channel uh, that explained her long QT syndrome. So really just an incredible story. Why are casinos some of the safest places in the world to have a cardiac arrest? <laughs> yeah, well, this is true. Uh, and and you, you might think uh, that a doctor's office is a safe place to, to have a cardiac arrest, which is say your heart stop. And I think and hope that would be true. There's a few other places. Uh, an airport usually is pretty safe. Uh, but one of the more surprising places uh, is a casino. Uh, and that's because, uh, first of all, they like to keep an eye on their patrons. So there's a lot of cameras everywhere. But actually, <laughs> a few years ago, they tested, and they want to keep them alive, which is another important point. Uh, they tested a, a method, basically, of bringing automatic external defibrillators. We talked about 
the uh, pacemaker-like device that was implanted in little baby that could deliver a shock to bring the heart back to normal rhythm. Well, at, at stadiums and at uh, airports and, and in casinos, they have these automatic external defibrillators that are these boxes, you sometimes see them on the wall, or usually red. And if, if someone does have a collapse, you can bring them to the individual, put the pads on their chest, and the computer will essentially diagnose the rhythm and deliver a shock. And so there was a very famous study of uh, deploying these essentially in casinos. And, and it was incredibly effective because they could tell very early if someone had a collapse, they could get trained staff there very quickly, put the defibrillators on uh, and bring people back. And so uh, really a great demonstration that if you could get these kind of devices close to the place that they might be needed, and I, I wouldn't want to cast too many aspersions about uh, folks in casinos, but the, the, the sorts of risk factors for heart attacks uh, do include uh, smoking and diabetes and eating too much and certainly casinos likely contribute a little bit to that, I think. So I think drinking alcohol falls into that category too. Certainly not the best for the heart. Yeah, it's not in excess anyway. <laughs> Part four of the Genome Odyssey is titled Precisely Accurate Medicine. Genetic mutations can actually lead to improved performance. Who is Eero Monteranta and how is he a good example of this? Yeah, a remarkable story. He, he's a, a, a Finnish uh, cross-country skier, he was, um, who was one of the most successful Olympians in the history of, of that country. He uh, came from Lapland, and essentially, uh, this was in the 1960s, he won, uh, really dominated the, the sport of cross-country skiing. And uh, at the time, there were not many ways in which you, nowadays with new technology, there's lots of ways of, of cheating. You hear of athletes cheating. Back in the day, there weren't too many ways. And really the only way that was widely known was, was blood doping, which is to say, you can take some blood out like you're a blood donor, but you do it with your own blood. Um, you put it in a fridge and store it. And then just before your race, you give it back to yourself and you get an, a, a super boost from your own blood cells. A method popularized by Lance Armstrong in the Tour de France and, of course, professional cycling on the whole. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, exactly. And so um, and these days you can use uh, the hormone erythropoietin or sometimes known as EPO. And that was something else that, that Lance Armstrong uh, used uh, to trigger his own blood cells internally to make more uh, to make more blood cells and having more blood cells. Uh, it's not obvious maybe to some people like how that would help you. But remember, the red blood cells are the ones that carry oxygen to your tissues. And so if you can increase the number of red blood cells you have, and some people train at altitude, that's a legal way of getting more red blood cells. When you go up high, the oxygen tension in the air is a bit lower, so your body makes more red blood cells. But this was an illegal way to do it, where you give yourself your own blood back. But the only way of, of uh, detecting that is basically to measure the percentage of blood that is made up by your blood cells. It's normally about 45%. Um, but in Eero Mantaranta's case, every time he was tested for that, his number was much higher, uh, really outside the range in which it could be just from, let's say, uh, altitude testing. And despite his many protestations, um, a, a really a shadow loomed over his whole career uh, that he was blood doping. And this was why he was so successful. But in a real interesting genetic twist, uh, essentially he was he was taken off the hook and shown to be completely clear by the fact that, first of all, many of his relatives were also found to have very high levels of blood count and were also very good at cross-country skiing and other sports. Um, and what it was found essentially was that he had 
a mutation in his EPO receptor. So we talked about EPO a moment ago. What the EPO does is sit down on like a lock and key on top of a receptor. And that's what drives your bone marrow to make more cells. And he had a mutation there that basically meant that his his EPO system had had the, the foot down to the floor on the accelerator. His his bone marrow was like constantly making new red blood cells. This was almost like a superhuman mutation. Uh, it, of course, he still had to train. He still had to have skill, and he he trained a lot and had a lot of skill. But he also had this one extra thing, which was that genetically he was a little bit superhuman. Does a mutation like that, despite its enhancement, come at a price health-wise too at some point? Yeah, great question. And, and I think that's exactly right, because otherwise, perhaps over time, we would all move towards the advantages of these these kinds of uh, enhancements, if you like. But yeah, one of the things, if you, of course, if you think about your blood, there's basically liquid and then blood cells. And if you think about the cells obviously being a bit heavier, they, they relate to the viscosity of the blood. And as you go up with more and more cells, then eventually you get to the point where your blood is just not moving as quickly and is more viscous. And, and that would actually predispose potentially to clots. And, 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 and so at some point, you're, you're going to lose the enhancement and actually have a very significant downside. But a little bit of an enhancement uh, seems and it would appear in this case to be uh, only a positive thing. Uh, and one, one of the researchers who looked into this family realized that the, the people in the family who had the mutation uh, were basically all long-lived and had uh, very, very few uh, diseases. So it did seem to be, be helpful for them. What was your Stanford study that was titled Exercise at the Limits, Inherited Traits of Endurance, and what did it uncover? Actually, the Aero Mantaranta uh, story was very much what inspired us to, to form this study. And you, you mentioned the, the different, uh, the acronym there. Actually, what it spells, of course, is ELITE. Uh, and this uh, explains what the point of the study was. We felt that we could learn so much from the people at the extremes. I think this is true in all of science. People go to extreme environments to learn about special bacteria, that, and we learn very interesting things about uh, organisms that live at those extreme conditions. Well, we were really interested to study humans with extreme talent. And in this case, our focus was on their capacity to maybe run or row, but basically their fitness. And so we set up the study kind of inspired by that Eromantaranta story. And essentially, it is a study uh, run by a, uh, someone who did his PhD and then a postdoc in, in my lab and now is an independent scientist called Mikhail uh, Madsen. And he uh, roams the world basically looking for the fittest people on the planet. And to give you an idea, there are, there are many Olympic gold medalists who do not have a fitness number, and this is the amount of oxygen that you can consume per minute. That's that's how we judge your overall fitness. This is sometimes called VO2 max. Uh, there are Olympians who basically don't reach the entry criteria for this study. So it's possible to win Olympic gold medals and actually not have an exercise capacity that's high enough. We mentioned Lance Armstrong a few moments ago. He, he absolutely did. Uh, often a normal number for the amount of oxygen that you can take up is around 30 or 40. Uh, the, the entry point for our study is like 75. If you were really pretty fit, let's say you did a lot of cycling yourself at a recreational level, you could easily be 50 or 60. To get to 70, you're probably getting close to national class competitor. To get to 75 and enter our study, you really have to, to be pushing. And many folks in our study are in the 80s, even some in the 90s. So, so these are just the most extremely fit individuals on the planet. And our, our idea is to learn from them in the way that, that we were able to learn from the Mantaranta family, because I think if, if you think of an engine, uh, 
that, that performs a, a Formula One car, for example, in order to win a Formula One race, literally everything, in this case, human and engine, uh, has to be perfect. Uh, everything has to move. Every single component of that system has to be working optimally. And so our sense was that we could learn from those individuals who have everything working absolutely optimally in order to help those who have systems that are not working optimally, which is to say patients with uh, diseases. And uh, the main focus, of course, is, is the heart, well, because I'm a cardiologist and the heart, it turns out, is to be really important uh, for fitness. Uh, but of course, it's also the lungs. It's also the blood for delivering oxygen. And then, of course, finally, of course, it's the skeletal muscles and ability to run, bike, jump, swim. Uh, and so those systems are the focus. And we're hopeful to be able to find uh, maybe cures, but certainly insight into diseases of the heart, the lungs, blood, and the skeletal muscles. What is Mendelian randomization and its importance in the eternal scientific struggle to determine causation versus correlation? Yeah, really important question. And uh, well, what if the, the, there's, there's only a couple of ways in scientific studies that we can truly uh, get, to the, get to conclude that uh, one thing causes another. And uh, it's not immediately obvious why that would be, because we operate in the world in a way where if, if, a, if a kid kicks a football, a soccer ball at uh, a window, uh, we kind of know before the soccer ball hits the window that it, there's a chance that that window is going to break. And we know that because we understand the world. We understand how uh, soccer balls fly through the air. We understand their weight. We understand the likelihood of the glass to, to break. And so we bring that understanding to the world. So we kind of understand that one thing causes the other. It, um, if, it, if it, another example sometimes is it, people uh, put umbrellas up when it rains and we understand that it's the rain that causes the umbrellas to come up and not the other way around. It's not that a whole bunch of people putting up umbrellas is what causes it to rain. And that seems ridiculous to us because why would it be that way? But think about a world that now we don't understand. And this could be biology, could be the genetics of heart disease. It's a good example that I talk about in the book. This is a world where we don't understand what causes another thing. All we understand is that two things happen at once. Uh, and a good example uh, from, from heart disease is that there are two kinds of cholesterol that we normally talk about. There's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And uh, sometimes L LDL and, and HDL. And, and HDL should be a higher number. LDL should be a lower number. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we get the good cholesterol up and the bad cholesterol down. And there's been a lot of focus on uh, the bad cholesterol over the years, the LDL, and getting that number down. Um, and we know that uh, people who avoid heart disease have low levels of, of the uh, bad cholesterol and high levels of the good cholesterol. So the assumption had been that if you could then take uh, a drug and essentially reproduce that situation where you have low levels of the bad and high levels of the good, then you would have two ways of, of beating heart disease. But the interesting thing is that while the first is true, if you take bad cholesterol and lower it, many uh, of your listeners may be on statins or have heard of cholesterol-lowering drugs called statins, then you absolutely will reduce your risk of a heart attack. Uh, and that turns out to, to be a causal mechanism. You reduce the bad cholesterol, you can reduce the risk of heart attack. But the interesting thing is that, that the same doesn't apply to the high, uh, the HDL, the, the good cholesterol. If you artificially increase the good cholesterol, you actually don't uh, save people's lives with heart disease. And it turns out that's what we sometimes call a bystander. 
And one way of thinking about this is that uh, it's, it's certainly true that there's an association between gray hair and heart disease. Like there are more people with gray hair that get heart disease. But that doesn't mean dyeing your hair black is going to prevent your, your uh, chances of, of having a heart attack. And it turns out that actually the high density, the HDL, the good cholesterol, moving that up is the equivalent of, of trying to dye your hair black. It's a bystander. It's like a signpost that you have risk for disease, but it by itself doesn't actually change the risk. And, and that takes us to the Mendelian randomization because in a very elegant work uh, done by a colleague of mine, say, Katharisa at, at Harvard and his collaborators, they demonstrated using genetics that, that in, we could have known this in advance. I say in advance because actually drug companies were going after both of these. And of course, the group that went after the low cholesterol did very well. Drugs that went after the high cholesterol did not do so well, uh, HDL. Um, uh, but nowadays, with the power of the genome, we can actually know in advance which are those causal mechanisms and which are just the spurious correlations. And it's, it's an interesting uh, technique that uses the fact that there's an element of randomness that happens when every new person is born. Um, and so the, the only other way we can have of getting to it is to do what we do, which is clinical trials where people randomly get one drug or another. And that randomization is what equalizes the other variables and allows us to, in the end, to, to be sure that the only thing that was different between these two groups was that one got the drug and one didn't. So that allows us to get to causation. Uh, but we can use this trick with genetics because of the random nature of the way the, the, the genes are sort of switched up as people, uh, new people are made. And the fact that happens at the earliest point in life before anything else in life happens uh, to basically jump to a, a similar kind of conclusion. And so that, that provides a lot of power and particularly if, in terms of drug companies making bets as to what uh, genes they should go after or what targets they should go after for new drugs, it has brought a lot of power uh, to that kind of situation. So most people walking around right now, and perhaps many listening to this podcast, are familiar with genetic testing because of companies like 23andMe. How reliable are these private, direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies? Well, it's been a revolution, really, this ability uh, to get genetic information to the consumer. And I think it, it's been, in many ways, I think, something for us to celebrate. The, uh, an understanding of our genetics tells us a lot about who we are as humans, Understand gives, gives us an understanding of who we are related to. 23andMe is one you mentioned, Ancestry is another. And both of those companies provide uh, tools to allow you to explore your genealogy, your ancestry, where you come from. I think people have, have got, gotten a lot of, of joy out of understanding that. Of course, that level of genetic data can also tell us about health, but it's only really just at the point of becoming powerful enough to do that. And just to let you know, uh, whereas we've been talking here about genome sequencing, where we spell out literally every one of the six billion letters, most of the genetic information that you get when you spit in a little tube and send it off to 23andMe and Ancestry, it's a, it's a little less data than that. So it's a little bit, uh, if you want it sort of numbers wise, that would give you about a million data points, as opposed to the 6 billion data points you get from sequencing every number. But it's not to say that isn't very powerful, which it is, and it can be powerful, of course, for ancestry. And increasingly, that kind of information is going to be very useful for health as well. And uh, in fact, this year at Stanford, we're beginning to use that level of information to help prevent and predict disease. If you think about, we talked a lot about heart disease, and if you go to your doctor and say, I'm, I'm worried about my, my risk of heart disease, well, at the moment, they'll ask you about whether you smoke or not, what kind of diet you have, do you exercise, you'll have tests for diabetes and cholesterol. Hopefully, they'll also ask you about your family history. <clears throat> but at the moment, 
unlikely your GP would say, well, let's sequence your genome. But something that I think will happen going forward is that we definitely will start to get that information and the sorts of information that the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies have right now can start to inform uh, when added to those regular risk factors, your likely risk uh, for a heart attack. And that's important because <clears throat> generally our professional bodies like the American Heart Association and others feel that if your risk over 10 years of a heart attack is higher than about 7%, then you're somebody who should consider, let's say, a cholesterol medication, depending on your level, or someone who should consider getting high blood pressure drugs you know, before your blood pressure gets too high. And so it's an important estimate to make. And that kind of level of information, which is a bit less than sequencing the whole genome at, at a very high depth, high coverage, um, is the sort of information that would, would help us make those much finer predictions. They're sometimes called polygenic risk scores. And that's because the risk of those diseases like heart attack is spread out over your whole genome. And it actually takes five or six billion, uh, five or six million, I apologize, uh, data points uh, coming together to really give you a good estimate of your genetic risk for those kinds of diseases, as opposed to the ones we talked about earlier, like the rare diseases. Considering its precision, is CRISPR gene editing capable of fixing genetic mutations and reversing some of the damage done? CRISPR is such uh, an exciting technology, and it's really only at the its earliest stage of, of us being able to harness it. And many of your listeners, I think, will have heard of gene editing and uh, might have heard of, the, of, of CRISPR. Uh, what they might not know is that CRISPR itself has been around for millions of years. I mean, it was basically CRISPR is the way that bacteria fight viruses. Uh, if they, you know, their immune system, if you like, is is a, a me- it has memory, and this is this is where it was. So CRISPR was, was the- Kevin Davis wrote a great book, and I know you've spoken with him in the recent past. We had him on this show to talk about it. It's a fascinating subject and one that I think people are only going to continue to be encouraged by once they learn more about all of this, right? Absolutely, yeah. And Kevin has been such a, a proponent of, of genomics over the years. Actually, one of his uh, books, that earlier books, The Thousand Dollar Genome, was one of the my inspirations when we were really starting to think about what we could do with genomes. And yeah, his latest his book is, is really is really incredible too. And focusing on, yeah, this really exciting era, because once you can sequence the genome, once you can read it out and, and then hopefully understand it, and we're making a lot of progress on there, the next thing is, can you fix it? <laughs> and so... And, and that's not so so easy. But looking towards nature, and in particular, CRISPR systems are, are really our latest thought about doing that. Not, not the only approach to genetic therapy, but certainly the most exciting and new one. Um, when, you, you, when you think that you could potentially fix the errors in the genome, that, that speaks to a very interesting moment for, for the millions of people around the world with, with, I think, first of all, rare genetic disease. One of the things to mention, we've talked about rare disease here. Rare disease individually it is extremely rare. We talked about MEPAN syndrome when there were, you know, 10 individuals in the, in the world with it. But collectively, if you think about all the rare diseases together, collectively, rare disease is really common. In fact, one in 15 people in the world has a rare disease, which is, you know, almost basically as frequent as diabetes. So as a, as a group, it's, it's actually very common. And when you think about the genome as one tool that can help all of that, all of those with rare disease, that's, I think, very significant. But, but of course, reading uh, is, is only useful if you can get to, to writing. And so we're at the earliest stage of doing that. But I do believe we're in somewhat of a golden age of, of genetic therapy right now, CRISPR being the tip of the spear, but there, there being a number of other approaches where diseases like hemophilia and spinal muscular atrophy, a number of other of these rare conditions, 
are going to, to essentially come under the umbrella of diseases that can be attacked, sickle cell disease just in the last few weeks, uh, new data on that, uh, that can be attacked using genetic therapy. So there's a, there's a long way to go uh, for us to be able to use these safely. There's questions about how do we get the, the CRISPR machinery into the right cells at the right time in the right place and have it only do the thing we want it to do. So like any tool, we have to really learn how to use it. But it's an incredibly exciting time, I think, to be able to connect our reading of the genome with the potential to write the genome too. And final question, Ewan, just how inspirational are the patients that you get to see and treat on a daily basis with everything that you're doing medically and otherwise? Yeah, and, and the reason I wrote the book is because I, I just am in awe of our, our patients. I mean, I every day uh, we hear stories that would just blow your mind. And I, and I think that um, my attempt in, in putting the book together was was just to be able to tell some of their stories. Um, it's just so inspiring, and especially these those with, with these uh, illnesses that are mysteries than where they spend years. I mean, to be able to think of, of families with little kids with, with an unknown diagnosis, think of the worry any, any of your listeners with uh, kids will know. I mean, you, your kid disappears around the corner for 10 seconds. Imagine that feeling of, of panic, you know, when you don't know where they are. But then imagine that every day, every minute, every over, over many, many months, sometimes years where you don't have answers and and the fortitude that they have to live with that and then when they have a diagnosis to, to attack it, uh, sometimes they're coming together with other groups and families with the same condition, raising money, uh, getting it to scientists to be able to try to, to reach for cures. And it's just so so inspiring. And so I, I hope, and I, I wrote the book for them. I hope others enjoy uh, reading their, their stories, but they're just such an inspiration to me. And that's the reason I get up every morning. Dr. Ewan Angus Ashley is a professor of medicine, genetics, and biomedical science at Stanford University, the founding director of the school's Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Disease, the Clinical Genomics Program, and co-director of Stanford Data Science Initiative. And he's just published his first book titled The Genome Odyssey, Medical Mysteries and the Incredible Quest to Solve Them. Ewan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important book. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder to check out booksonpod.com. You can hear all of our episodes there as well as subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.